Attention shoppers, we now have taste in the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread. That's right, an organic bread that doesn't need three spoonfuls of sriracha jam to delight your taste buds. Dave's Killer Bread is a 21-grain salute to the end of boring bread, a brand on a mission to make the most out of every loaf, to rid the world of GMOs and artificial ingredients, and plant the seeds of good in all that they bake. But Dave's Killer Bread has done more than raise the bar on bread. In fact, Dave's Killer Bread was built on the belief that second chances can change lives. When its founder, Dave, the guy with the guitar you see on every loaf, returned to the family bakery after 15 years in prison. Dave took that chance and ended up creating what would become the country's number one organic bread while never forgetting his not-so-easy path. That's why at Dave's Killer Bread, they proudly practice second-chance employment, hiring the best person for the job, regardless of criminal background. And by the taste of it, things have worked out rather well. Dave's Killer Bread. Bread Amplified. This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is insuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, Greg Scheinman here with episode 95. Yes, episode 95 of the Midlife Mail. With the Midlife Mail Podcast, my mission is to help men navigate middle age to achieve a better quality of life. Each week, I get to share stories of inspiring men that reveal our humanity and inspire action. If you are listening right now, been listening for a while, or are new to the show, welcome and thank you. I am super, super grateful. It would mean a lot to me if you would subscribe to the pod and newsletter, and if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on iTunes and follow me on Instagram. That is how the Midlife Mail movement grows. Thank you again. Today, I am bringing you my conversation with Cameron Weiss. He is the master watchmaker, founder, and CEO of Weiss Watch Company. Cameron launched Weiss to restore prestige to American watchmaking. In his pursuit to tell stories of the great American watchmaking past, he turned to vintage gauges and aviation from which to pull design inspiration for his namesake brand in a thoroughly modern way. I love these watches. I wear these watches. I got my first Weiss at Stag Provisions in Austin, one of my favorite stores. I think they got locations in Austin, in Houston, in Dallas, in Venice. I think there might even be more. Could be missing one, but check out Stag Provisions. Awesome, awesome stuff. I will be getting my second Weiss in the near future so that I can have one to pass on to each of my boys. My dad was a big watch guy, and when he passed, my brothers and I each got one of his watches. Cameron and I talked about the sentimental aspects of timepieces, and it's one of the things I really like most about Weiss watches is that I know who made it. Especially now that I've had the experience to visit Cameron's workshop and see the time, attention to detail, and passion he has for the craft of watchmaking, and that it is a truly family affair for him. We recorded this in California at Weiss Watch Company HQ amidst some really amazing vintage cars that Cameron has, Volkswagen Bug, Land Rover. He's got some amazing classic machinery, and of course, a lot of Weiss watches there being assembled. With that, let's get to it. 
Cameron Weiss on this week's episode of the Midlife Mail Podcast. All right, it is Midlife Mail Podcast time. Greg Scheinman here. This is a huge honor and a huge privilege. I am sitting at Weiss Watches with the man himself, Cameron Weiss. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to have you here. So I really appreciate you you taking the time, reached out, been a big fan for a while. First learned about Weiss through, we were just talking, Stag Provisions in Austin. Saw the yeah. watches there and I said, okay, I... I need one of those. <laughs> at least Good. one at least one of those. Yeah. Over. Stag does a a great job. And purchased my first watch there. And being a watch guy, my dad was a was a watch guy. My brothers and I inherited a few watches from from my dad. Still really enjoy trading watches and, and, and having watches. I get more questions and positive feedback about my wife than I do about anything else that I wear. That's one of the things that I hear often, and it makes me so happy. It's the best compliment I could get. And, and certainly well-deserved. Well and I kind of have this, this theory, this feeling that with a lot of things, you know, food tastes better when you know who, who prepared it and who cooked it. You know, my clothes feel better when I know who's made them. You know, my watch that I want to wear from and... And if I know the person and the brand and some of the story behind it, you know, there's a pride that you take in wearing it from the entrepreneurial journey, story, crusade of, of the whole thing. I just get a real kind of charge out of that and the brands and the people, you know, that, that I look for and, and want to support. So it's cool to, again, be out here sitting across from you, seeing all the tools and, and the workshop. Um, let me first ask you, how has this always been a passion for you? Like, did you all, when did you know you were going to be a watchmaker? At a pretty young age, I was exposed to watches. I, and I always collected them, saved up my pennies I, and literally saved up my pennies. I had, uh, a five gallon jug in my closet that I filled up with pennies, nickels, dimes, whatever. It was so heavy that my parents got concerned. It was an old house and it was the second floor and this thing was full, five gallons of coins. Uh, but I went and I bought a watch with it. And I, I had counted everything out. I knew exactly the watch. I calculated tax. And I was a little kid when, when I was doing this. But I've always collected watches and always been a tinkerer since a, I was, since a young age. What was the watch you bought? That was a freestyle Tide watch. It was like, you know, digital, obviously. Uh, and it was black and orange. And I had been wanting this watch for so long. Uh, and when it first came out, I had saved up enough for it. And I actually got serial number one. And I didn't know it when I bought it. But later I looked at it and it was serial number one on the back. But I still have that watch. <laughs> <laughs> Where, tell me a little bit about your background. Where were you born? Where were you raised? I was born in San Diego. Uh, spent my younger years in San Diego. That's why the ocean is so important to me it was growing up near the beach, uh, going body surfing and, uh, basically coming home from school and my parents would just send me outside onto the sand. Uh, from there I moved up to the Northwest and that was shockingly different. I, I absolutely loved the forest, started hiking and, uh, just 
became a different type of outdoorsy, I guess, mm-hmm. um, living there with the mountains and skiing and, and snow and everything. But eventually that rain starts to wear on you. <laughs> and I ended up finding my way back to uh, Los Angeles for college. And where did you study? Uh, I studied at USC. Okay. Yeah. So what is a future watchmaker study in co- in college? Uh, really, it's just a... Just a way to fill some time. I, I, I still hadn't really figured out how to become a watchmaker, but I knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, I had also started a business when I was younger. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I started a board shop. So I was selling uh, surfboards, skateboards, snowboards. And with that, I sold that before I came back to L.A., uh, and I think that was probably the reason I was able to get into USC, um, immediately got into Marshall school of business there, but then quickly realized that business school isn't necessarily for the tinkerer. Um, now I think there's, there's a little more, um, entrepreneurship in mm-hmm. college, uh, a little more exposure to that. But at that time it didn't feel like anyone was making those kinds of moves. It it seemed like everyone was going into uh, some sort of consulting position that really didn't interest me. Mm -hmm. So I started looking for ways out of USC. It's it's an interesting point that you make as it pertains to kind of business, business school, running a business, and again, being a tinkerer and, and a watchmaker. Do you have both, like, Left brain, right brain. Do you have both sides? Meaning, like I can, I can see making the the craftsmanship and the tinkering and the doing of it very different from we have to deal with distribution and we have to manage the numbers and the and the business and the money and all that. Like the kind of the creative and the and the, and the business. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I see both sides. However, I'm much better at doing. Um, if I sat back. And I ran the numbers over and over again to figure out what's going to be profitable. A lot of times you're going to come up with this area where it could be profitable, uh, but there's always some amount of risk. And then there's the people who take that risk and there's the people who don't take that risk and they move Mm -hmm. on to the next business and they run the numbers again and they just keep moving from place to place, keep trying to figure out what the most profitable business might be Mm -hmm. uh, or how to make a business profitable, but... If you don't jump in and get your hands dirty as that final step, you're going to have nothing in the end. Mm-hmm. So, so kind of, and I'm, I'm in risk for, for a living actually. Uh, so your philosophy on risk really is just, just go do it. I want to make watches or this is what I want to produce and this is what I want to make and we'll, and we'll make a dollar at this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of think that, uh. With enough hard work, any business can succeed. Mm-hmm. So when you decide you want to become a watchmaker, what are the steps that you take? So the quick route is to immediately just go straight into a watchmaking school. You don't have to have any uh, any college background. You really just have to have that tinkering mindset and you need to be able to learn in that style of uh, almost like an apprenticeship. If you can handle that, it could be a good fit. 
uh, if you're really passionate about it and, and can sit at a watchmaker's workbench for eight hours a day and still at the end of the day think, I'd love to sit in front of the lathe and make, you know, some tool or make some part or something for another few hours. Uh, that would be the ideal way to do it. You could get in and be a watchmaker and get a job within two years. Okay. What's the other way? You said, you said that's the ideal way and you're grinning. Is the, there, what's other, the way, other way? The other way is like I did um, where I went to USC uh, for a few years. Then I actually went and worked in a machine shop here in Los Angeles. In the machine shop, I learned CAD and CAM, which are computer-aided drafting and computer-aided manufacturing. Uh, that allows you to design modern products on the computer and then manufacture those products using CNC machines. So that was my first entry into manufacturing. Okay, a little more tech savvy. Exactly. So a little different, a little more modern than just going to watchmaking school. From there, I applied to a watchmaking school, went to a watchmaking school for two years, and it was six students and two master watchmakers full time. So very, very time consuming. Uh, doesn't cost any money. Okay. However, it's full time. So the opportunity cost of not having a job, it can be expensive and a little daunting for a, a young kid who mm -hmm. could otherwise be making some money. Uh, so I did that. Then I worked for Audemars Piguet and then for Vacheron Constantine. And I learned more about some of their manufacturing, but also just about the history and more complicated watches. They're, they're some of the most expensive watches from brands out there. Um, both amazing brands. Um, to date, we were talking earlier that my brothers and I, my dad was a watch guy. And so my, I'm, I've become a watch person mainly because also of the sentimental value that I feel that watches hold. You know, from a men's jewelry standpoint, from a accoutrement standpoint, watches are the thing. I'm not a very ornate person. My dad was an ornate person. But the Audemars uh, was one of his favorites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's probably, I don't know, yeah, it, it's my dearest possession of sentimental value on top of being just an unbelievable timepiece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you start out with not only the story of Audemars Piguet and everything in their history before they even made that watch that you have, then you have the story of that watch being made by their watchmakers in Switzerland. And then you have the third story, which is your father having that watch. Mm -hmm. And all of that together makes for something that is irreplaceable, basically. It, it really is. And you think about the opportunity to pass these timepieces down from generation to generation, and they still hold up. Not only hold up, yeah. but can increase in, in value as well as on both sides, the sentimental value as far and, and the brand value itself. Yeah. You touched on something that I wanted to talk about a little bit, the, the modern and the technology and the one way that you could become a watchmaker. And then also the, you know, the classic and the iconic and the by hand aspect. And I think, I mean, it's not like, like you do a great job of blending the two. You know, being able to work in the modern environment, but like your watches have a real timeless, iconic, I think, mean, simplicity, you know, to them 
that that I really love. Is that intentional? Is that is that accurate kind of the way? Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, the goal behind the company is actually to increase awareness of mechanical watches. I noticed as I was uh, going through school and working as a watchmaker for these other companies that so many of the people that I interacted with outside of the watch world had never heard of a mechanical watch or had never interacted with a mechanical watch. And they just thought that all watches had batteries or some sort of electronic component in them. So to me, I wanted to, a big goal for me was to create a watch that is not so expensive, not something uh, like these other brands where they have hundreds of years of history and uh, all of this handmade aspect that goes into it. That's all wonderful and very important in watchmaking. But with modern advances in CNC equipment, we can actually keep the cost much lower so that we could expose more people to mechanical watches. Uh, because I kind of feel like buying a mechanical or buying a quartz watch uh, right now for $500, $600 is a total loss. You already have that in your iPad or your iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you already have that in your car. We have all these electronic clocks around us. So it's not really about time. It's about everything behind the face of that watch, everything that went into it, all of the history, and that's all there, but it's being done in a way that it's more attainable. Mm -hmm. So we could expose more people to it. That's really what I'm trying to do. How often do you get to tell that story? Like in in your experience of, okay, here's the mission. Here's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. The balance also between being able to say that, put that out there, the quality value proposition, and then also the, it just looks really good. Like, you know, like, and that's, and that's great too to sell. Like it just yeah. looks really good. Yeah. Okay, and, and I would like that because we're living in an age also where you can pick up an, an iWatch as you said for, you know, a few, few hundred bucks, you know, you're looking at quality and workmanship and craftsmanship and that just do you wrestle with that a little bit? Like, oh, I wish I got to talk more or say more, or I guess, how do you, how do you do that? It's tough. I, it helps that we mainly are direct to consumer. So we're able to talk to a lot of our clients directly. Um, when we are working with stores, it's really hard to get the message out because you could look at the front side of our watch and it, mm-hmm. it looks like a watch. Like mm-hmm. it looks like, a classic design, um, but when you turn it over, then you have the movement and you see the other 120 pieces mm-hmm. that go into the watch that are all traditionally decorated, traditionally hand-finished, uh, just like watches that are in the $10,000 range. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it's a cool thing. I, I, I took mine off to look at it while you were, were describing this because it is such a cool thing when you can flip it over and see exactly what's going on there and it differentiates itself again from a product where the inner workings are are kept from you you don't yeah. you don't know what what's in there yeah so what was tell me a little bit about the very first Weiss 
watch and said, okay, this is the one we're going to start the company, start the brand, and this is going to be the first Weiss watch that I put out. So the first watch that I put out was the field watch, which we are still making today. That's, that's really our brand is the field watch right now. Um, simple time only manually wound. Uh, and I say simple, but it has almost 150 parts in it. So simple compared to the watches I had been working on that could have been 500 pieces in one watch. Um, but the idea was to keep it very simple and classic, something that, uh, like vintage watches have that, uh, charming aesthetic and look timeless, but in a more modern material, watertight cases, uh, with the stainless steel, larger size. So it's kind of blending modern and vintage so that it could have been a watch that, you know, your father passed down to you or his father passed down to him and, and came three generations ago, but it's made in a modern way. Did you start direct to consumer or were you going into, into retail? I want to delve into kind of both experiences. We started direct to consumer. We were not retailing for the first year. Okay. So how does that go? Put up the web, put up a site. Like take, take me a little bit through that process. How did people find Weiss? How did they find you and what kind of inquiries were you getting or what were you doing to push yourself Put yourself out there. So we were very fortunate in the time that we started the brand. Uh, we were able to launch our website. And actually, I launched the website after we launched the brand, which seems a little backwards considering the only place to buy the timepiece is from us on that <laughs> website that hadn't existed. Okay. Um, so we went to a menswear show in San Francisco, and we launched the brand there. At that time, which this was about uh, a little over six and a half years ago, there were a lot of new websites popping up, uh, websites that were just starting to get traction, um, like Gear Patrol and uh, lots of sites like that that were hungry for content, basically. So really quickly, we were picked up by a lot of those blogs as well as a lot of regional bloggers who showed up to the show we were at uh, and loved the story. It was a great test to make sure that people liked not only the product we were making, but the story behind our brand, uh, which is kind of merging historical watchmaking and everything, all the art and craft that goes into that mm -hmm. with modern techniques and a little bit of a uh, modern spin on the design. How do you take feedback? I've been to a lot of trade shows in, in over over the years, mm -hmm. and you can get a, a booth at the show, and you've got everything out there, and everybody's got an opinion yeah. on on everything. How do you take feedback, good, bad, and different? Could be positive or or constructive criticism, as everybody's always is as they're yeah. walking through. How do you take it? It's it's tough to put yourself out there at, at these trade shows like that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, people could hear your story for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, have almost no exposure to the market. Um, 
yet they have a really strong opinion as to what you should or shouldn't be doing. Um, so you kind of have to take a lot of that with a grain of salt. I enjoy hearing people's reactions, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to immediately change anything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it is nice to hear people's feedback because it's rare that you get something that's totally just, it really should go in one ear out the other. Um, that it's rare that that happens. As a, as a tinker, you know, you've used the word tinkerer a, a, bun, a number of times already, but, and also the number of parts in a watch from 500, even down 150. Are you a patient person? Like the process of watchmaking, I guess is one element of patience, but the building of the business and the brand overall, another, are you equally as patient in both areas or I can sit and build a watch for hours, days, weeks, 500 pieces, but the brand, like we got to move or I I'm a little less patient with growing a business. However, uh, I do believe that slow growth is very important. There are, we're lucky. We've made it past the five year mark. Hopefully we'll make it past the 10 year mark. And then eventually I'd love to see this business existing without me. Mm. I would love to see, uh, you know, a couple hundred years from now, people sitting there saying, was there, was there a Weiss? Is that, it was that somebody's name? Is that why the brand is named that? So slow growth, I think is, is very important. Is it, is it a family business? I mean, you, you have a family now. You're yeah. married. I'm going to, how involved is the family and the brand? Again, you wear your name on your wrist. Yeah. Uh, completely just the family is engulfed by the company basically. <laughs> so my wife runs all of our, uh, customer service, uh, social media, marketing, sales, everything. So Scheduling I can focus on podcasts yeah. like this. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She runs most of the business on that side. Uh, and I can focus on more of product development and manufacturing. Can you separate the personal and the professional you know, when you go home at the end of the day? I mean, if you're both involved in the business and with everything that's going on, can you, do you, are there some boundaries or lay of the land that you've established to kind of separate the personal from the professional? Or, that's or a very hard thing to do. Um, it, it's definitely definitely one of the hardest things to deal with. We don't really have much separation. Um, it's just, I mean, when you're, when you're living it and it kind of is your life for the past six years, it's hard to even think about what your life would be like if you just had a nine to five and weren't thinking about any work afterwards or bringing things home. There's always more to be done. Uh, one thing I always say, because Whitney does ask me, uh, now that we have a child, she's working from home instead of at, uh, at this office, mm -hmm. but she'll ask me, you know, uh, how much work do you have today? And my response is almost always 
it, it never ends basically. Like <laughs> it's how much do I want to do today? Not necessarily how much work do I have today? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, when are you going to turn it off at the end of the day? I could work until 10 o'clock every night. There's plenty of work to be done. There always is. Is the work for you on that side now just to meet the, de- is it to meet the demand that you can make as many watches as there is? Are people waiting now? Yeah. Yeah. We've had a waiting list almost the entire six years we've been making watches. Wow. Yeah. Is there, what's the most notable order that you've gotten? Like, did something come in and you were like, whoa, okay, so-and-so just ordered a watch or this point, did anything jump out and, and like surprise you? Like, this is really awesome. Our, our, my watch is going to be on so-and-so or somebody just ordered it without any solicitation. Or we do get that quite often. Um, there's a few that really stand out, but I, I don't really want to mention names or mm-hmm. anything. Okay. However, I will say... Um, one thing that I really love is when we're sending watches to Cupertino uh, up to Apple. Mm. When somebody from Apple buys one of our watches and has it delivered to their office, I love that feeling. Because a lot of times I will hear from people, you know, oh, well, nobody's going to be wearing a watch. Everyone's going to be wearing an Apple watch. That's the future. Mm-hmm. And I don't really believe that. I think there's a place for both. Um I mean, if if you're a young person who has an Apple Watch and you're wearing your Apple Watch all the time, well, what are you going to do when you go out on a date? What are you going to do when you have a big meeting uh, or you're, you know, you're going to a job interview? Something like that, there's no reason to have a phone on your wrist. It's almost saying, mm-hmm. you know, the person sitting across from you is not important if your wrist is buzzing all the time and yeah. little alerts are popping up. So having somebody wearing a watch at all is a good thing. It's going to lead to realizing that having something on your wrist is important to you, whether it's a phone or a watch. Mm -hmm. Who do you get inspiration from? I get inspiration from a lot of places. Um, I mean, of course, there's the entrepreneurial side where I really love a good startup story. Uh, Things like that are very inspiring to me. But also, because I am a maker and a tinkerer, I really love to hear a good story about the art side of it. Seeing other artists who are able to kind of balance that business and uh, having a viable business that actually makes money so that it can exist into the future Mm -hmm. while still maintaining the artistic side of it, uh, being able to create what they want to create. Uh, So I kind of get my inspiration from those two areas, Mm -hmm. which I think are very far apart, but in the end, hopefully they reconnect because that's the business I want to be in. Mm-hmm. You, you just resonate kind of quality over over quantity, like in in general. Okay, um, the surfboards that are here 
obviously the watches, the VW, mm-hmm. the the Land Rover, the classic NASA <laughs> machines <laughs> you know, that that are in here. How that kind of that kind of quality and that style balance that a little bit if you can for me with with the financial kind of your your perspective on on money and how you, you know, save it or spend it or choose what you're wearing and and what you're doing kind of style or you're not trendy but you know what you know where I'm going with this yeah <laughs> yeah i think uh i'm very fortunate because i love the business i'm in so it makes it very easy for me to justify uh investing or reinvesting in the business because spending that money on the business actually does bring me joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very helpful in growing the business because there's a lot of reinvestment that takes place in order to grow a business and maintain a hundred percent ownership, uh, and still exist after, uh, after as many years as we've been around. So that's very important to me, but I also kind of, I make my decisions as far as buying and it could be anything machines for the workshop, cars, clothing, any of these things. I think about the work that went into creating something uh, and the idea of why that item was created. The reason I love the Volkswagen Beetle is because it was created to be simple and inexpensive, but still beautiful. And that is inspirational to me because that is Part of the reason the field watch is a simple timepiece that is manually wound, but mechanical. It's simple to work on. It should be relatively easy to fix for any watchmaker. And it's a timeless design. It should stand the test of time. So things like that, I kind of mirror across my life uh, with everything I've decided to purchase early. Would you describe yourself as a minimalist in any way or other people have described me as a a minimal minimalist? Um, I don't necessarily think that I am. However, I live in a very small house with very few things, uh, very clutter free. So yeah, I I think I definitely have some minimalist uh, tendencies. What do you do to decompress? Do you have a routine? Are you a meditation guy? Are you a bath guy? Are you a hiking guy? Like, what's your what what's your thing? I've never been a meditation guy. My dad always tried to get me to try meditating, but I have a very hard time doing nothing. I've found that if I go surfing, even if I if I go surfing, I could just sit there out in the waves and that is meditation for me but i have to think that i'm surfing even if there's no waves <laughs> it could be flat a flat day but i have to have something i'm doing so i i end up going on hiking trips uh surfing anything outdoors where i can get away from other people get away from the workbench that to me is my meditation mm-hmm are there? Have you given thought? I'm not given thought. But have you? Are there any plans for a female Weiss 
watch, or can or do you see them as being able to be worn by anybody by by everybody right now? Also, I never really set out to make a a men's watch or a women's watch. Uh, our first field watch that we made is forty two millimeters, so it's a little bit on the larger side. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that was also very trendy for women to wear a larger watch. Uh, and it still is. So we did sell many of them to to women. However, we made a smaller version now that's 38 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Still not a women's watch by any means. Um, so now we have the two sizes, which helps out. But I do want to make a watch that is designed for women. Uh, but it probably won't be uh a super feminine design it, it'll just be its own uh its own version of the field watch essentially mm-hmm. if you weren't wearing a weiss what would you be wearing i would probably be wearing i have an old rolex that i would probably be wearing an old rolex submariner mm-hmm. classic yeah, and that's that's my uh, that's kind of my I guess uh, aesthetic is I, I really enjoy old things as you can see from the <laughs> workshop. I mean, we have tools from the eighteen hundreds here, so I, I do enjoy vintage things. Being at this for now as long as as long as you have interviews coming through, is there something? that you'd never get asked, but you would like, why doesn't, why don't they ever ask me about this? Or is there anything in particular you're just waiting to talk about? I cannot believe I never get asked this question, whether it's something you want to answer or something you hope you don't have to answer. Maybe either one. I don't know. I, I know I've never thought of that. Um, it is pretty regular where you know the the questions i i could almost write the interviews for most magazines um because oftentimes it is very repetitive however every once in a while i will get a writer that asks completely different questions and that is really refreshing um because then i get to tell a completely different story which is nice um but as far as questions that nobody asks I guess very few people ask about the uh, the simple things. So, uh, the other day I was doing a podcast and I was asked about making, or I was told about a company that made a, di- a watch that had a different color dial and how that was kind of gimmicky maybe, like putting it out there as a new model. But then we started talking about what that actually requires to have just one part on a watch that seems like it's the same watch as the other one. Mm -hmm. Just doing that, what that requires inventory-wise and planning-wise, and you essentially are, you know, doubling your inventory size if you go from one watch with one dial color to another watch with another dial color because now you have to be prepared to sell both items. So there's a lot more that goes into it. It's not just, uh, well, I'll get 50% of 
what I normally would have purchased or made in this one color and 50% in that color. Mm -hmm. Well, if people don't decide to purchase the new color you've released and everyone still wants the old color, but maybe the new color helps sell them on the old color because they go, you know what? I don't want a white dial. I want a black dial. Mm -hmm. And seeing the two together makes me realize how much more I like the black dial. And everyone buys the black dial. You now have a problem that you didn't (laughs) have before. So that was an interesting uh, discussion that I had never been able to have with anyone. Mm -hmm. Has your perspective on the business changed since becoming a father? Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I used to be very happy working seven days a week and working 14 hour days, 15 hour days, that was uh, energizing for me. But now I try to take my weekends. I actually want to not be here sometimes, which at first was very an odd feeling to not want to be at the dream workshop I made. Uh, so that was a, a little, little bit of a change that uh, for the past five years I... I hadn't really thought of that. I was just at the workbench working and enjoying, uh, growing the business. But now I'm starting to see that I don't have to be here seven days a week. There's other things I can do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and that leads me to, to the next question because you had, had mentioned previously also that, okay, the brand could go on without you. Mm -hmm. That a hundred years from now, people could be asking the question, was there ever really a Weiss involved? What, what else would you do? What do you, do you have ideas for other businesses and brands and areas that you want to get into? And it's just not now, but you've set benchmarks or, or goals, or this is next thing for me and the thing potentially after that, but we got to get here kind of first. Not necessarily me moving on to other businesses, just uh, seeing this either passed down to my children or uh, if they don't like it, sell it. (laughs) But I would love for it to exist. Mm -hmm. Um, Having worked for Audemars Piguet, a very old company, still has family members uh, who are owners. And then Vacheron Constantine, one of the oldest operating watchmakers uh, seeing their histories, I think there's how you operate a business right now and how you set it up. Uh, it can either be a one generation or a one lifetime business where it just will not function without that person, or it can be something that the torch can be passed, uh, whether that means selling it or passing it on, passing it down. Uh, I'd just love for it to be set up in such a way that it will still exist. Mm-hmm. Was there a pivotal moment or two, one where you felt, okay, this business is going to work? Mm-hmm. And then the opposite of, because for every entrepreneur, you know, we, we, ha- we have these yeah. two where, you know, you just had that day where you're like, fuck, this, I, I don't know if I want to keep it. We're going to keep doing this. You know? Yeah. Uh, 
I think weekly <laughs> I get one of those days where it's, oh, this is not working, or uh, weekly as well, I get one of those days where this is amazing, we're doing great, we're going to grow this, whatever. Um, that's a big part of running a business is having those ups and downs. Uh, the highs are way higher and the lows are way lower. That's one thing that I have learned. Uh, when it sucks, it really sucks. But when it's good, it's all you. You know, you're in charge. You made it how good it is. How how many people are part of Weiss right now? Right now, there's two of us. So it is completely operated by two people. Everything from manufacturing to... Uh, pack and ship and sending watches out the door, selling watches. That That's amazing. Yeah. Do you want it to grow to more people or is that something you're intentionally trying to keep, keep it small and keep it tight? I mean, this too is super tight, but yeah. And so there's a, there's a big degree in between, but I guess what I'm saying is, so look, I like small controlled or, like, I don't think I'm a great leader of large teams. You know, like, I don't, that's not really my thing. Some people are great at that. You know, yeah. I like small, personal, one-on-one -on -one conversations, communications, production, boom. Mm -hmm. I like having my hands in every part of the business. Um, so that is okay at this size. We do need to grow uh, with more people, though. And I just have to figure out the right way to do that because we are in, um, we are making watches here. So it's not, uh, not an easy thing to scale up, not in the U S at least. Do you want to teach? I mean, I would imagine if you, for you to scale up and grow, do you see yourself as yeah. a teacher? Then I would love to, to set up a, I mean, at the very least, an ap apprenticeship program. But at one time, I was talking about trying to figure out how to set up a watchmaking school here. So we'll see. I mean, that is one of our goals is to to try and teach watchmaking. Mm -hmm. Who does that appeal to? I guess not in, in a in a tech in a tech world in a way, or a private equity startup, sexy businesses like who the craft of watchmaking. Mm -hmm. Anyone who has ever worked on a project and made something and at the end they were really kind of blown away with, I made this. Even if it was just making a cutting board or uh, making something super simple, just making something. It doesn't have to be hard. But the fruits of your labor or the fruits of your uh, focus and energy and at the end of it, you actually have a physical thing that you created. Uh, you sell it, or maybe it was just repaired or something. It, you give it back to the client. Um, and seeing their eyes light up, that's very special. And that can recharge somebody's batteries uh, very quickly when you see that smile and see other people respecting how much work you put into something. Uh, so I think for the right person, it could be a really fulfilling job. Mm -hmm. um, but it requires a lot of patience. It is 
typically like a quiet job. Um, so a lot of times introverted people who want to be able to focus at their workbench and quietly sit and work on a project. Um, but again, I, I've met all sorts of different types of watchmakers with mm-hmm. different personalities. But yeah, definitely wanting to work with your hands is an important one and see the the fruits of your labor. Do you have a process that you go through yourself when you're making a watch? Like, do you listen to music? Do you wear the same glasses? You know, do you sit? I listen to music. And I mean, other than that, I enjoy coffee while I'm working. That helps me a lot. Um, And a lot of people think that it might make you shaky or jittery. Um, But I will say there's just the right amount of coffee before you get to jittery. (laughs) Um, So if, if I end up having too much coffee, that's when I move over to the computer and I do some accounting or write some emails. But what type of music? Uh, everything. Honestly, I I go through country and folk and uh, indie rock, alternative rock. I don't listen to much rap, but pretty much everything else. Do you yeah. play anything? I don't. When I was younger, I, I had played some instruments, um, but it just never really grabbed me. I... I'm the guy that would be making the guitar instead of playing the guitar, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you travel much? I don't travel often, but I do, when I travel, I'll make it a big trip. I'll do something, uh, something that most people would think is crazy. Uh, Like over the holidays, I drove a camper van up to Northern Montana and back and just took uh, a few weeks, you know, in the woods, decompressing. Now, was that a solo trip, or was that the family? With the family. Okay. With the family. Two dogs, baby, wife, uh, in a van. (laughs) So do you prep, like, for that, between point A and the destination, are you a planner saying, I want to make these stop. Are you researching? We're going to stop here. We're going to do this. Or are you, we're going from point A to point B and we're going to get there as quickly as, as we can. So I, I don't mm-hmm. always do it as, it's not like a, a speed kind of thing, mm-hmm. but I also don't research. I've found from, from doing trips like that over the, over the years that if I do the research, they're not as much fun. If I don't research and I don't schedule, you know, we're camping here or we're, mm-hmm. we're going here, if I don't schedule things, we just kind of go for it and we discover things that are completely new that we never might have found otherwise. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to travel at your own pace because you're not, oh, we got to get into the Redwood Forest to this place <laughs> by tonight. So, you know, we're driving in the dark. Now, are you in sync, okay, with me on this? Are you guys... Are you in sync with that? Not planning things stresses her out. Mm-hmm. See, I got, I got the yeah. same, I got the same thing, <laughs> the same thing. Like I would hop in the car and I would go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if it's Houston to Austin, like I don't book that hotel necessarily <laughs> in, in advance or yeah. or whatever. Wife, Kate can't do, Kate can't do that. Where are we staying? We're, we're gonna figure this out. Yeah, that's we're the same way, but 
she understands after all the trips we've done like that, that it does make for a mm-hmm. better trip. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. I think that you get to places or you're going through places and the idea of if we just turn right yeah. here versus like, let's see what we could, what we could find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saying, okay. I don't know if I want to just like Google the top 10 places to see, you know, between, between here and, and, and somewhere else. I think there's a value in kind of getting lost a little bit. Yeah, I completely agree. That's, (laughs) that's my style is just take it as it comes. (laughs) Are you a, a, a biker motorcycle? Like what would, what's your favorite mode of transportation? Mode of transportation? I mean... I enjoy classic cars a lot. I think the reason uh, is that the driving is very different than a new modern car. You're listening to every little sound, thinking, oh, am I going to be stranded in the next five minutes? Is something wrong? You're, you know, hearing the, you might be sitting there sweating because you don't have AC, but you're just more in tune with everything around you when you're driving a vintage car. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I enjoy walking around. When we go and visit uh, new towns and cities, just walking the entire day. What are guys, if you're observing, what are guys kind of missing, you know, these days? In your observation, like, are they moving too fast? In their office too much? Like, what, are, like, what do you observe and be like, okay... I don't know if I get that, you know, or, or you're seeing again, you're not husband, father, watchmaker, you know, I'm getting a little older and, and having these conversations going, Hmm. Okay. Are you seeing things? Not, not so sure. That's like, so, so great. Or I would do this a little different. What, what are you yeah. seeing? I think that people spend too much time, uh, researching. I think with the internet, it's too easy to think, I want to do this. Maybe I want to build something or restore a car or go on a trip. And you can think, I want to do this. And then you can go on the internet and you can waste all of this time researching and researching and researching. You can research something to death and never actually do it. In the meantime, somebody else who didn't spend all that time researching might have restored one car didn't like the way it turned out. So they restored another car. They learned from their mistakes. They restored another car. By the time you're still researching, restoring your first car on the internet, they've restored 10 cars Mm -hmm. and they've learned exactly what they do and don't like. And also a lot of real skills in the meantime, or they've made 10 trips and they've said, well, you know, that city's not for me. I did that. Let me check this. Or these kinds of places are not for me. This, I don't like those hotels or I, I don't like whatever it might be, but they discover what they really like Mm -hmm. and they learn from each one. I think we kind of have a little bit of a a stalemate with research right now. Yeah. It's somebody that's from the internet. uh, You know, paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Like, okay, you don't actually end up doing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can find reasons not to do all kinds of things. You right. can analyze this to death and just be stuck, just be stuck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's a real, it's a really good point. Um, 
So I've got a Weiss watch on my wrist. Now I'm staring at the back of it. I took it off. But for anybody wearing a Weiss on their wrist, they look down at it. What do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? I hope that they feel like what they're wearing is more than a watch. That it's not really about what time it is or... um, you know, how long this meeting is lasting or whatever it might be. It's not about the time. I hope that they look at the watch and think about the history, the craftsmanship, and all of the tradition that went into creating it and that that makes them smile or in some way makes them feel good about themselves the watch, uh, or where they're at in their life. It's, it's awesome. So I think on, on, I can't think of a better way to really sum that up than to be kind of concluding with the smile and that, and that kind of emotion. So I hope everybody out there, midlife male or otherwise, Mm -hmm. go check out Weiss watches, go get yourself one. Go look down at it and smile. I think, again, when you know where things come from and who is behind it and the passion and the skill and the meaning, like it, it, means, it means a lot, um, especially in a world and a time where things are moving super, super quickly. Um, and, and we've lost a little bit of that. So thank you for, for keeping that going you know, and having that kind of style with, and substance, that combination. It's really cool stuff, and I just appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you for your support. Pleasure. All right. If you like what you hear, give us that five-star review. Okay? Tell your friends. Tell your family. Spread the word. And if you want to learn more and find out more about watches, Weiss Watches, where should people go? They can go to our website, weisswatchcompany.com. You can also find us on Instagram and see some uh, photographs of watches and also behind-the-scenes making of watches. And that's... Weiss Watch Company on Instagram. They can also find me, Cameron M. Weiss, on Instagram as well. And you have a podcast also. That's right. back. Okay. What is your podcast? My podcast is all about watches. So if you find that maybe this kind of wet your whistle on uh, watchmaking and all sorts of watches in general, uh, check out Watch and Listen. It's a podcast and YouTube, YouTube show where we go through all different kinds of uh, watch brands, watch complications, uh, people in the watchmaking world get a little bit nerdy sometimes, but it's also just fun to kind of expose yourself and see the the different uh, watches that are out there. Thank you again for giving me a glimpse inside your world, inside your studio, inside the, the man behind the watches. Uh, really cool afternoon. Thank you so much. All right, we're out. Until next week. You've been listening to the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman, presented by Ends Group. Ends Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit endsgroup.net. All right, guys, I want to talk a little bit about Mascot Books. They are one of the country's leading hybrid book publishers, and they can take your big idea and transform it into a print or digital book that matches your voice and vision. 
Whether your story is one of growth, balance, success, or all of the above, Mascot Books will bring it to life. Head over to mascotbooks.com to learn more. I am a big believer that everybody has a story. Everybody's got a book in them. Not just the athletes, CEOs, entrepreneurs, risk takers, but everybody. You know you've got an idea for a book. If you do, if you want to put it out there, head on over to mascotbooks.com. These guys are the best in the business. I have known Naren Ariel and his crew at Mascot Books for years. I've had him on the Midlife Mail podcast. Go back and check that out. We've also had a couple of his authors on the show as well. If you've got that story in you, if you want to be an author, you can do it. Mascotbooks.com. I want to thank these guys for supporting the show, keeping the midlife male movement growing. Mascot Books. Check it out. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.